You're listening to the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Podcast. If you're an aged care professional, you can connect with us at the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Facebook group. Otherwise, you can connect with us at our regular page at Prof. Joe Online. You can also visit our website at profjoe.com.au for a collection of all our links. Also, feel free to email us at info at profjoe.com.au. Welcome. Welcome to the Prof Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Podcast. In this podcast, I have with me Pratik. Hi, Prof. I also have Marie Crosland, who will be familiar to you, the CEO of Napier Street. Hello. And uh, Dr. Lisa Clinic, who's the Director for Aged Care Services at Ballarat. Hello. So today on the podcast, we're going to talk about one of the difficult things, which is managing residents during the time of COVID-19. There's roughly three groups of residents. There's the group that we don't suspect of any active COVID infection. There's the group that may have COVID infection as indicated by some early suspicious signs. And then there's the group that we have confirmed through testing to have COVID infection. One of the things we've been working on is to simplify this system so that people in aged care can at all levels quickly understand how to treat a certain patient in terms of remaining safe for themselves and also in terms of potentially spreading it to other people. To that effect, in each of these groups, there's a different way of interacting with the resident in terms of the personal protective equipment you would wear, the screening tests or tests you would perform, or the isolation measures that are taken to prevent spread to others. To tell us a bit more about this system, I've got some questions here for Prof, and perhaps we'll begin by asking you this question about the traffic light. You've chosen to go with a green, yellow, and red system. Can you tell us what that's about? Pratik, what we wanted to do is to provide a simple system that people could readily understand. Behind the scenes thinking is very complex and it really adds to confusion when we try to layer that information. People understand the traffic light system. They they know red is stop and green is go. And when you're yellow, you need to be cautious. And those ideas apply really well here in terms of understanding COVID-19 in residential aged care. The system needs to be understood by doctors, nurses, personal care workers, the managers, visitors, external contractors. So we can't have a system that is confusing or complicated. And just to clarify on that, of course, this is not an official recommendation from any health department. This is just something we've been developing behind the scenes to help us simplify things. And and we put it forward as something to debate. Just in terms of how the green, yellow and red would function, are you suggesting that there would be some visual representation of those colours somewhere? What we know, people respond well to visual cues. And so if you've got something that alerts you, that often works far better, which is why we revert back to the colour system. It would be possible to use the colour coding in terms of for the resident's file or perhaps even at their door. There might be some issues related to privacy with the coding, but I think that given the seriousness of COVID-19, I would expect most people would be accepting to have some sort of signal to let staff and others know 
whether the resident does or does not have an infection. In terms of approaching a person in the green category, maybe if we start off with some basics, in terms of protective personal equipment, how would we approach that? With the resident that we've considered in the green category, they ought to be treated the same as a healthy person in the general public. We've had a lot of questions and concerns about whether face masks should be used and whether PPEs should be used when a staff member is unable to maintain social distancing. The current guidelines refer to the use of standard precautions. We need to acknowledge that staff and others are concerned that the requirements for social distancing are strictly adhered to when you're outside of a facility. But when you're inside the facility providing hands-on care, the the notion of social distancing seems to disappear for staff and resident. And so there'd be understandable disquiet about why is it different. Is that something that perhaps Maria or Lisa, you could comment on in terms of your staff? Have you been hearing that as a concern? So I have been hearing that as a concern from the staff. The staff very much think that they should be wearing masks essentially at at all times, but certainly when they're interacting with the residents. They haven't been, apart from residents who've been suspected of being infected whilst we're awaiting test results or residents that actually have an active cough of some type that may be their usual cough, but as a precaution in that way. I guess this is important because, you know, when you go to work, the principle is you want to be completely safe. And if you feel completely safe, you're not going to have any issues about being scared to go to work, which is something we've seen overseas as a a phenomenon. In terms of, say, if someone is in the green category and they have no symptoms and they're being showered or something's happening at close range, do your staff request masks at that time? Is that something you've been seeing? They have spoken about it. They haven't particularly requested as such, but they have spoken about whether it would be a better approach. Lisa, what's your experience? Yeah, look, I haven't had that feedback, but I also haven't asked for it. The staff, exactly the same as Marie, if there's someone with any sort of symptoms that we do where the staff are wearing protective or PPE gear, Look, I I think the staff are also quite aware of the shortage of PPE gear and that's not only a local thing that's been on the news and so they are aware of it but it hasn't come up but I I think it's a really good point. There's this inconsistency in, in regards to messaging that one thing is okay in the community but when you come to work it's okay to do something different and I think that that does cause stress and concern. That is something that we're definitely going to be putting as a recommendation from this podcast topic that we discuss further with the health department to see if they have any further guidance on how to treat that concern. Moving on then from PPE in the green category to uh, talking about the next thing, which is screening. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, Prof? I wanted to just give probably two or three examples where The changes to the body that occur make the current screening guidelines not as sensitive or as good as we would like them. As we get older, people lose their sense of taste and we know that loss of taste or smell could be an early warning symptom of COVID-19. The issue that's closest to my thinking is the temperature. 
A temperature of 38 is quite a high temperature for an older person. Many older people don't develop a fever. Some, in fact, drop their temperature when they're unwell. COVID-19 is far more likely to be atypical in an older person than the classic symptoms that we've been communicating to the general public. From a public health point of view, what would be a good way of approaching developing a set of criteria for screening tailored especially for the aged care population? The complexity requires uh, an expert panel to think through the screening questions. The ones that we've considered that are important would include whether an older person has symptoms related to confusion, diarrhoea, whether they've got irritability, whether their functional status, that is their ability to dress, eat, shower or toilet independently whether they've had a new fall, these might all be indications that the person has a COVID infection. And we know that older people present symptoms of common diseases differently. So so this is not new to people in working in aged care. Maybe we'll put this to Marie and Lisa. How, how have you guys found the implementing the current screening guidelines? We've been implementing the current screening guidelines on a daily basis. It seems to be working well at the moment, but it is taking resources that we probably don't have so much. So it's certainly putting a pressure on the resources. But reading some of the other questions would lead me to think that we should be doing a lot more screening than what we're currently doing. And we would not like to miss out on anyone because we'd been just screening the the temperature and whether someone's got a cough or a sore throat or anything like that. It seems to be the symptoms can be much, much broader than that. Just with that simple level of screening that you're talking about in terms of the temperature and the symptoms, how how do you actually go about doing that? What's your process? Uh, We do it in the morning when the medication rounds. So the RN takes every person's temperature and has a chat to them about whether they've got any other symptoms. So that's done in the morning for us and then followed up if the staff report during the day that anyone appears a little bit unwell in any way, then we go through the same process again. And also with your staff, how do you screen them or are you screening them? Uh, We are. So when they first come into their shift, they sign off on a, a little declaration, have their temperature taken. So a few people from that have come in and said, I have got a bit of a sore throat. So then they turn around and go out the door. Yep, yep. You mentioned staffing is already difficult with that. And it's one RN doing that for how many people as a general rule? So we've actually got uh, two RNs most days and they're doing that for probably about 30 people each. Wow. Lisa, what's been your experience? Yeah, so we're um, because we're under public health, we have ratios a number of our facilities. So we have all nursing staff and no PCAs in a number of our facilities. Uh, And then the other facilities that do have PCAs are also supported by registered nurses and enrolled nurses. So we are doing the same sort of staff screening as Marie spoke about, as well as asking about the flu vaccination now. We're using uh, pulse oximetry a lot more, respiratory rate, those types of things, rather than depending on temperatures. We've We've had some interesting experiences with the use of tympanic and the infrared thermometers. What kind of experiences with the, with the thermometers? 
there is quite a bit of technique in taking a temperature correctly, both with tympanic thermometers and with the infrared ones around distancing, getting the tympanic thermometer in, you know, in the right place in your ear. And if they're rushed and things, the temperatures can be not as accurate. And just to be clear, how many times are you doing those screens per day? Is it once a day or? So for staff, it's every, every time a staff member comes into the facility. But residents, uh, I would say, depending on which facility we're at, but it's, it's usually a, a full set of OBS. It wouldn't be daily. It would be less than daily that we're doing that, unless there's a, a reason to do that. Right. And have either of you had any experiences yet of people being positive for one of these signs and then requiring some sort of isolation? Yeah, we've swabbed about 5% of our residents so far. We've got a, a stable staffing profile in our facilities and our, our staff know our, the residents very well. They are often able to pick up subtle, very subtle changes or they, the staff member may feel that the resident just isn't quite right and they will often identify a deterioration before you're getting those clinical symptoms. And that, that is reflective. I've, I've seen research around knowing the resident and that staff almost have that intuition around when someone isn't quite right and they're deteriorating. And when staff are saying those types of things, we encourage staff to come to us and we really listen to that because it is very much an early indicator. Yep. Just for completeness on green, so we've discussed what the recommendations are. We've talked about some of the important things about understanding your residents and knowing when they are not quite right. And we've also talked about, Prof, you suggested an expert group to look at some very specific screening measures as a guideline for the entire aged care workforce. Just to round that off, could you give us a little bit of an insight into what are some of the things you might think would be part of that screening protocol? We need to add a symptom screen that looks at the presentation of an older person. So a person who develops confusion or, as we call it, delirium a person whose dementia worsens uh, or has responsive behaviours, those that are irritable or more withdrawn, those that have had a fall. They're symptoms that we should be actively looking for. The sense of staff that the person is not quite right, I think we need to respond to that in an official way and recognise that that's a real phenomenon. And everyone who's ever worked in aged care will know what we're talking about. Those that haven't might be a bit sceptical, but the not quite right feature is a very prevalent in practice. I'm going to turn to that now, Prof, if I could. Someone has one of the signs, according to a screening tool, that now places them in the yellow category, which we're saying unconfirmed or suspected COVID case. What are some principles that should apply thinking about this yellow group? There's two main points to make here. One is that the screening will detect a large number of people, some of them who won't have COVID. The residents in aged care are often in their 80s with anywhere from three to about six different medical problems on about 10 medications. So when a resident is not quite right or when they have a new fall, they might in fact have a different illness or one of their chronic diseases such as heart failure or diabetes has gotten worse. So we need a medical assessment to determine whether the change in the resident is due to verifiable and plausible alternative diagnosis 
or whether it's likely to be COVID-19, those decisions really require a switched-on general practitioner and often, I think, a a medical specialist to be involved with that decision-making. The second part of the being in the yellow category or suspect category is we want to be making decisions as accurately as possible and as quickly as possible. We don't want to be making mistakes, so we don't want to be keeping people in the suspect category or in isolation any longer than they need to be, but nor do we want to take them out of that category prematurely and tell people they don't have COVID when we're not 100% sure that that's the case. I'll walk through some of these steps one by one so we can get Maria and Lisa's input into those. Uh, Starting off with isolation. So someone gets flagged as yellow, they're now being isolated. They obviously cannot be cohorted with other yellows because if one is yellow and positive and one is yellow and negative, one could infect the other. How are you finding that in terms of the ability to do that effectively in aged care? What has been your experience so far with isolation? In residential aged care, we're not unfamiliar to isolation, that we unfortunately have seasonal influenza outbreaks as well as gastro outbreaks. So we have outbreak procedures and they basically reflect the Commonwealth's outbreak protocols that we put in place. We find that we we do extra training, particularly leading into winter in regards to PPE gear and um, identifying people who potentially will need isolation and we're also supported by residential inreach and we've got infection control consultants as well but it is very difficult to contain outbreaks once once you've got a virus in the facility so it is once you find it you'll then tend to find others it, it sort of snowballs and then it'll stop once you've got all your processes in place so, and it is also difficult if you've got shared bedrooms as well. So you might have one person in a shared room that is showing signs and symptoms of a virus and you've got another person in the room sharing that room that doesn't have that. That, that is also another challenge. I'll just put this question to both Lisa and Marie. In terms of people being concerned about a large number of people in the aged care population meeting the criteria that we're talking about, that extended criteria. Do you think that's the case? What proportion do you think of your aged care population would fit the criteria for isolation if we were to extend it to being a bit off? I would be guessing probably 30 or 40%. And Lisa, what do you think? Yeah, look, I, I agree with Marie. It'd probably be around 30% or so where it's where they're new symptoms, like they haven't haven't seen that before. Or yeah, the fall the fall's a good one for um, identifying someone who's deteriorating uh, and responsive behaviours for someone who usually doesn't display those types of behaviours is another indicator that we see. The overall, I would yeah probably around 30%. Given of that 30% of people that would fall into this screening category, the majority of them, especially right at the moment, but though this may change in the future, will not be COVID positive. What's the feasibility of making their quality of life similar to that someone being in the green category with the current resources you guys have, if you were to isolate them? So if we isolated them to make them have the same quality of life as someone in the green, the resources that we would need to have that 
would be up around those in a public hospital ward at least. So we're talking double, triple the numbers of staff? I would be saying I'd think double the number of staff. Patrick, I, I wonder though whether it comes back to how long you're going to be isolating them for. I mean, when, when this first COVID-19 viruses came through, it was taking three or four days to get return on swabs and that time factor has really decreased. We can have our swabs back within 24 hours, if not sooner now, up until last week. So I think as the testing gets better and faster, we will be able to swab more people and we won't have to have them in isolation for long periods of time. I'm going to move to the next idea there, which is how hard is it at the moment to get medical clearance via doctors in aged care as things stand? Is that something that is easy to access or hard to access? Well, I think there's some very specific guidelines around clearance based on what we've seen from the state health department. Yeah, as you know, our teams looked at guidelines from the UK, the US and Australia and WHO, and each of those groups has variation in how they determine whether someone is cleared of a COVID-19 infection or when they're no longer infectious and can then go back to living their life in the residential aged care facility. So I, I think that's very difficult to comment on with any certainty at the moment. Maybe if I look to some questions on the ground about it. So Marie, you mentioned there's been a couple of cases where you've had to swab in your facility. Tell us what happened there. So who performed the swabs? How easy was it to get the swabs? What was your experience? We got the swabs. That was okay. Our clinical care manager organised it and he actually did the swabs and sent those off because the week before he had actually been swabbed himself. So your clinical care manager, just for clarity, is a nurse, a Div 1 nurse, yeah? Yes. Yep. And so he did the swabs and sent them off. And the first ones that we sent took, I think it was two days to come back, but the one we sent yesterday afternoon, Sunday afternoon, was back by lunchtime today. So that was fantastic. And who who did you get to order the tests? Uh, the doctor ordered it and faxed in the order. How hard is it for you to get a doctor in to kind of make an assessment about a patient's symptoms? Is that easy to do, hard to do? I think we're very fortunate at the moment. We have recognised that having a locum doctor come in that goes to a number of places is probably quite high risk. So one of the local doctors quite close to us has essentially taken on the role of being the locum for the other doctors when they can't get in. And we're currently finding that's working really well, but I think we're, we're very fortunate to be where we are and have that doctor available. And do you use telehealth to consult with that doctor or just phone conversation or how does that work? Both. Both. And in terms of getting a physical kind of presence, is that difficult to achieve? Uh, no, he will come in if we need that physical presence, so that's really good. Now, I'm not sure how often you have contact with other owners of other aged care facilities, but is that a common experience to be able to access the doctor that easily? or Not from my past experience, it's not. I think that a lot of doctors, they're quite stretched resource-wise and coming into aged care is, is obviously quite time-consuming and probably 
doesn't pay as much as doctors would get paid in a general practice just because of the amount of time that's taken. So, yeah, so I think that's where the, the problems come from. Because as a doctor myself, I kind of see that as a major issue just with the limited work I did with nursing homes as a general practitioner. And I think if there was some dedication from the health department to to get those doctors into those facilities, it would make that job a lot easier for doctors to do. I wonder if that's something, Prof, you want to comment on in terms of getting doctors into aged care to actually swab and assess patients. The public health practitioners are probably critical in this situation and being able to talk to them about each individual case and to go through the the risk profile of a resident and the decision that you're making is a and, and you know we, we've said this repeatedly is complex is frightening because of the potential consequences of making a mistake even as a as an aged care specialist I'd be wanting the reassurance of being able to talk to a public health specialist within the health department. The aged care population, and particularly those in residential care, need a specific policy and screening approach that caters or adapts to their specific needs and that the general policy is not enough. I mean, what I'm hearing is if I had to go to a facility to clear a patient, with atypical symptoms, I'm hearing of a completely unforgiving situation if I'm to get it wrong and the patient has COVID with incredibly poor specificity testing, essentially, in an incredibly complex diagnostic dilemma. And if I was trying to work that out myself, I could probably have a good go at it, but I can assure you it would be different to someone else and different again to someone else again. And I just feel like it's such an important thing that you want some uniformity in that approach. And the way to do that is through something like you're describing, Prof, from a public health team or... I think the complexity around the screening, to me, explains why things have been so catastrophic overseas. And I'm assuming they've been using the same general population screening. And so they would not have picked up residents who were not quite right, residents that had a fall residents that have changed that didn't meet their testing requirements. And so the infection would have spread far quicker because the rules that were being used were not suitable for the environment. Yep. So, I mean, we have three tasks now for this expert committee. We have work on criteria for screening. We have work on the parameters for actually clearing patients back to green. And we also have developed an advisory body or group that can interact directly with clinicians or facilities to convey consistent information about judgments in those kind of complex atypical situations. Is that right? Yes, I think the fourth thing is this same group should be advocating for, we go back to, for a humane way to have isolation for the groups that are in this yellow category or suspect category. I think if we're able to make that time humane, it's far easier to get a more detailed screening process in place. Pratik, can I just add just add a couple of things, just while I'm thinking of it, that um, I think we also need to be cautious about, obviously we need the medical model and the medical side of COVID-19 and all the outbreak processes, but 
We can't forget that this is a person and that they have relationships that we've, we've actually often secluded them from as well. And that now they, they go into this further isolation. And as a person, that can be quite detrimental to a healthy person, let alone someone who is already, as you just said, uh, in communal living, uh, they're already unwell. And now we're, we're putting this extra layer on top. But the other side of it is also that person often has family or significant friends or people that really worry about them. So when we phone up and say, we're testing such and such for COVID-19, that can be quite stressful for the family as well. And particularly when they can't come in and visit. And the staff have to have that discussion, which puts the staff member under a fair bit of stress as well. So this is quite, as Joe has been saying, it's quite complex and it is, it is quite layered in the considerations that as a provider we, we need to take into account and ensure that we're supporting everybody. I think that both Marie and Lisa highlighted the importance of remembering that when we're talking about the residents that it's the person who will feel the fear as does their family. And so we need to be very circumspect in how we approach it and very understanding in this situation. So thanks to Marie and thanks to Lisa. Thank you. Thank you. We've mentioned the red category, which signifies resident has a COVID-19 infection a number of times. We'll be exploring that topic in greater depth in our next podcast. I'm Professor Joseph Ibrahim. Thanks for listening.